There is a lot of pride behind uh, the growers in Australia, in the region they're in. I think, yes, when we go to the world, it's brand Australia and, or, you know, brand South Australia or whatever, you know, state you're in. But at the end of the day, what I think is, what gives growers the real kind of, you know, excitement is when they see uh, their region or a, or a brand that is championing their region doing well. Um, because, you know, I think that really gives them a boost and, and gives them sort of some, I guess, positive outlook into the future and say, oh, okay, well, you know, there is someone that's championing our region and, you know, that might mean that I might be able to sell grapes them one day or I might be already doing that. Today's guest, mainly because we couldn't get anyone else, is Tom Keelan. Tom has vineyard interests in the Adelaide Hills and Langhorne Creek and his own wine label, The Porn, which has a fantastic story behind it. And just in case you think you found yourself in a whole different kind of podcast, that's porn as in P-A-W-N, the chess piece, you dirty-minded people. Links to Tom's wine label can be found on the Wine Grape Council website and socials. We encourage you to check it out and follow along and support. Welcome to Healthy Minds, Healthy Vines, the wellbeing podcast for growers, proudly brought to you by the Wine Grape Council of South Australia, sponsored by Perza. Hosted by journalist and award-winning mental health podcaster Callum McPherson and columnist for the Australian and the world of fine wine and Australia's leading wine writer when sold by the kilo, Nick Ryan. Let's crush this. So Tom, take us back to 2002 when you and your partner were looking at selling some grapes to a particular wine giant and it fell through. Just tell us a bit about that. Uh, well, Callum, we were growing grapes for some of the big corporate uh, wine companies in Australia and it was probably at the start of the wine glut back then and we were on the precipice of a couple of year drought as well. There was some, I guess, I think looking back, some pretty poor decisions made by the bigger companies in terms of relationships. We were left in the lurch with, well, back then several hundred tonnes of grapes that we couldn't find a home for. So we decided to create a brand around, I guess, the story of the smallest player in the game of chess being the pawn. And when the pawns are played in a game of chess by the king and queen, they're kind of sacrificed and thrown to the wall, so to speak. And we felt that if um, the pawns all work together, being the small boutique family owned wine businesses in Australia work together, we could, I guess, you know, ultimately overcome and overthrow the kings and the queens that are kind of dominating the world wine and certainly certainly what I think the Australian wine scene presents to the rest of the world a lot of the time it's the big corporate guys there with you know they've got the funds the money to go and splash you know sponsor Wimbledon do all that sort of shit but at the end of the day it's the small family-owned wineries that are the you know the soul and the heart of uh, the Australian wine industry so the porn really kind of just represents all of them you know since then I guess that story's morphed into more of the focus on alternative styles and varieties, which, you know, as a grower and a winemaker, you kind of look back and you go, you know, hindsight's a great thing, but, you know, I'd love to have our time again in this industry, rewind 30 years and plant a lot more of the varieties that we're doing now, like, you know, Fiano and Sangiovese and all these varieties that I think are more... Um, I guess fit for purpose for what we do in Australia, you know, and also climatically, they're they're more suited to it. So 
yeah, I guess that's the the underlying and the under, underpinning of the story of the porn. So back then, were you told that your fruit wasn't up to scratch? Well, when when I look back, we planted a lot of these varieties for them because they had, I guess, the knowledge and experience to see what they were doing with them in the nor- northern hemisphere. So we planted um, Sangiovese and Tempranillo, not expecting to be making wine out of it ourselves, but that they the corporates would take these varieties and put, you know, certainly we were more looking at a regional focus, putting our region on the brand. And that was a big thing, you know, 20 years ago was when you sell your grapes to one of these corporate guys, are they going to be representing your region on the label? And there was a lot of push back then to kind of make them all generic in Southeastern Australia or South Australia or champion already prominent brands, uh, you know, regional brands like Barossa or McLaren Vale. So the smaller areas like Langhorne Creek and the Adelaide Hills were were being used, I guess, as to prop up these labels and and they never put the region on the label, which I, you know, as, as a grower, I felt, you know, pretty pissed off about because, you know, you want your region to be well known. You know, I guess at the end of the day, if your region is well known and they it becomes of demand, you know, your price of grapes will go up. Yeah. <laughs> Fundamentally, it's an economic thing as well as a marketing thing. So, yeah, so when they kind of had said to us, plant these varieties, but those are the varieties that they cut off first. When the, when the wine oversupply was, was, was starting, you know, they really did shift back to their or retreat back to their Chardonnay, Shiraz, Cabernet kind of focus. Yeah, so then you're like, well, what are we doing this Exactly for? right. Yeah. And we'd invested, you know, several years planting and nurturing and growing and establishing these blocks. And you look back then and, you know, these varieties back then, no one knew. I mean, Pinot Gris was an alternative variety. Dear price, old so, Pinot you know. Gris. But do, <laughs> do you reckon there's enough understanding and marketing departments of some of these wine companies of grower realities? You know, it's easy to sit in an office somewhere and go, oh, well, you know, this variety is the next hot thing. And I've just been looking at someone's Instagram feed and saw some influencer drinking this. But that rolls back into a, a fairly long planned out lead time so yeah you know if someone just comes in one day goes this is the new hot thing let's get everyone planting that you know do you think they have enough understanding of of the realities out there i I think they do you know i've always there are 100 monkeys a 100 typewriter kind of thing but at, at the end of the day the thing that constrains them or stops them doing what we do is they don't they don't have that flexibility or that malleability as a business. I mean, I guess for our businesses we have a philosophy of zig and zag, which is if we can change our direction at any time, as long as we've done, you know, the due diligence appropriate for whatever movement or deviation it is from the business strategy, then we do it. You know, you take that risk and it's a managed risk, but uh, you know, and sometimes it's a gut feel. I think farmers and growers do a fair bit on gut feel. And certainly the winemakers these days are doing a lot on gut. You know, varieties, um, styles, packaging, all of that. It's like, yeah, I've, I kind of got a gut instinct and this is going to work. But I think the big guys, yes, they probably foresee all this a lot earlier than we do. But to put it into practice, you know, I don't know, they've got boards and you know, shareholders and all these other things they've got to worry about, and I think they get a bit hamstrung. Mm. What gave you guys the courage to start your own thing? 
Well, we didn't have any other options. <laughs> <laughs> like, this know, is it. It was out of necessity, really. Yeah. You know, was that straight away that you're like, oh, well, we'll do it yeah, ourselves? Yeah, we started off small, though. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, fairly risk adverse. It certainly was back then. You know, it's a big shift from being a grape grower into being a, a wine producer and, you know, creating a brand and then going out and selling it. Yeah. But I look back and think, you know, that organic growth, and I use the term not in terms of, you know, we weren't, you know, organic, we are pretty close. <laughs> not but literally. Not, but that sort of, you know, natural <laughs> yeah. growth, I think, uh, served us well over the period of time. It wasn't, you know, we've had our challenges and we've had to, as most growers have over the years, you know, drop fruit on the ground, you know, not pick a block, change varieties, you know, all those things that have been stopping us from, you know, I guess a smooth pathway forward. Mm. Was there a bit of self-doubt there? Because it is a big jump, like you said, from one thing to another. Yeah, a little bit. I, I guess you always doubt, you know, you always don't want your children to be ugly and go into the industry, you are really bearing your soul, you know, whether it be grapes growing them and having a winemaker from a corporate company come in and, you know, pick the eyes out of your vineyard and tell you that, you're, oh, you know, you've got no, you've got too many non-count shoots. Now, the grape growers will understand exactly what I mean there, or you've got too much green fruit or, you know, all these things that they can really have pot shots at you. And, and sometimes I think... Um, and that's subjective as well. Yeah. It and, is. And how yeah. hard is it to push back on that? Because sometimes, you know, they might have other reasons for picking yeah. apart the vineyard and, and you know your vineyard better than anyone. Yeah. So how hard is it? To push back, you know, where is the power in that relationship? Well, it's like a Seinfeld. Seinfeld, they've got hand, they've got control in the situation. And unless you are growing the best grapes or grains or whatever it is, and yeah, they're going to cure customers out need, the door, yeah, they need you more than you need them. You can basically say, oh, look, you know, I don't agree with you. But unfortunately, the balance is in their favour. And it has been, you know, in a perfect world, it should be a relationship that's equal and that you work through those situations. But and I could imagine that some growers, you know, that, that just eats them away. Every year they get a, you know, whether it's a young intern winemaker or a, you know, GLO coming in, a grower liaison officer coming in saying, yeah, well, we're going to grade this, degrade this year. Now, you should bet your bottom dollar that, that there's a lot of reasons why they've channeled into that. It could yeah. be, you know, they've got pressure from above to say, you know, we can only allow this much A grade, this much B grade. and Yeah, they, and they've come in deciding it's D grade before they've correct. come through the gate. Yeah. But then yeah. the grower thinks it's a reflection of them and then correct. how do you not yeah. lose that self-belief yeah. from there? Exactly right. And, you know, this is on top of everything else that these guys are going through. You know, it's not, it's not easy growing grapes, you know. You've got all these other external influences to get these grapes, you know, or right there at the end. And on the 11th hour, you get a winemaker coming in and telling you, oh, no, your children are ugly. I'm, we, can't, we can't put them into... And that's getting harder because there's other forces at the supply end and also from the winemaking side of view, the logistics of harvesting all these grapes is, is becoming a lot more of a factor in how they grade your fruit, I think. You know, when all the tanks are full, you know, they can only take, I guess, what they need the most of. And, you know, I, I guess it's the, the grape grower equivalent of a conspiracy theory. You know, you know all this stuff's going on, but no one, can really, it down. no one can really call them out for it because you're, we're all so desperate to sell our grapes. You're not the, you know, the first grower to you know, build a label and you won't 
be the last, no. but how hard is it to go from having one job that actually is pretty full on and takes a lot of effort and a lot of input to suddenly having five jobs? You know, you're not just a grower, you're a winemaker, yeah. you're a brand manager, you're a salesperson. You know, it's it's completely sort of transformative of your workload. Yeah. How hard is that to manage? It, look, it is a tough gig, but I, I, I look at it and say, you know, how lucky I am that I have this diversity now in my job role and that when you go to the market, the, the I guess the authenticity of the story then is, you know, you've got from go to woe, yeah. whereas a lot of guys out in the trade, whether they be sales managers or, you know, brand ambassadors or whatever, you know, they've only got, I guess, that at the cold face. They're only just selling what's in the bottle and there's not that kind of story that... Um, not as much to talk about. Yeah. And I think these days the marketplace, not all the marketplace, but a certain, I guess, segment is looking for the story. They're looking for that, I guess, you know, reality check. Is it is this just a brand that's created from nothing? And, you know, a critter label, critter label as we used to call them, you know, in the 90s. Is this just a you know bullshit label off the shelf, or is this actually, you know, someone's actually spent some time making the wine and growing the grapes and designing the label and you know all those things, and not you know, just southeast Australia, which is everywhere south yeah. of Gladstone well, and, and and east south of Bunbury. Line, basically, yeah. So. Why do you think the story is so important to people who are going to be buying the wine? Like, why are we looking for that? I guess people want to champion the person behind the brand you know, become part of, uh, you know, a follower, if you like. And I see that with a lot of brands that have, you know, emerged in the last 10 years where they get a bit of a following and people are invested in them as much as, I guess, the person behind the brand is. And that's important because I think wine buyers are transient anyway. You know, no one drinks the same wine every day or every night or, you know, it, people will migrate between brands. But I think you're seeing now that they're migrating between brands that they like yeah, and yeah. the people behind them they like. Um, and great wine is all about sharing and, and I think yeah. people might want to you know, put a bottle on a table with their friends and you know, tell, you know, I, I went and saw this winemaker, you know, I've seen the vineyard, I spoke to the people behind the wine, you know, they have a connection to yeah. it. They yeah, yeah they're enjoying that friends. for the customer to be able to make it look like they've got some knowledge of yeah. the people who made yeah. it and it makes it a bit and more a little special. bit of emotional ownership yeah, yeah they'll see you this know? podcast and oh shit i've got to have some of tom's wine <laughs> oh that's it this is this is <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. 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 through the roof yeah. <laughs> but um you know you, you guys didn't start your thing just for you though like it seems like you're very passionate about championing small business generally why is that i i guess it's that feeling that the big corporate guys have been the face of our industry for so long and it shits me to tears when I go overseas to sell my wine and on the shelves you all you see is these big brand wine labels now I get that you know they have to be there in some capacity but when that's what most of the world knows of Australia I kind of think you know wow they're missing out on all this other stuff you know, the quality, I guess, is the issue as well, is that, you know, sometimes those big branded sort of generic labels that you see, you know, they don't have the quality and the, I guess, the provenance that a lot of the smaller family-owned wineries do. And it would be great to have that patchwork of Australian wine, the boutique sort of family-owned guys being, I guess, 
what is put forward more. Yeah, because they're selling us short. Yeah. yeah, but often it's down to the factors that, you know, A, we don't make enough to supply those markets sometimes, and B, it's really expensive to do that. But Is there enough support for smaller producers to, to penetrate those markets and to, you know, is there enough framework for smaller producers to come together and try and get some critical mass? Yeah, yeah. It's hard because, you know, say Wine Australia, which is our, I guess, marketing arm of our industry, you know, they have a big kind of battle struggling, you know, it's a balancing act for them because they have, you know, the big corporates that, you know, they obviously supply, um, you know, great amount of funds into the Wine Australian coffers. And then you've got all the smaller guys. And when they go to present our story as Australian wine story to the world, they have to, they have to have both. Yeah. But ultimately, I think what will happen is that people will become less interested in that bigger corporate wine and I think they'll be you know when tourism re, re, you know comes back and people start traveling more you know I think wine tourism is going to be something that is huge in Australia and that people trying to find stories you know they go on their adventures around Australian wine regions and they'll find those smaller guys and yeah it's just then a matter of trying to get the wine to them whatever market they're in. So, Tom, I mean, you're looking at the business from, you know, a bunch of different angles, you know, as a winemaker, as a, uh, a brand manager and a salesperson, but fundamentally, you're a grower at heart and you must think a lot about, you know, how viticulture in this country gets better and improves and develops. So, you know, when there's research and development money around the place, if suddenly someone gave it all to you and said, you get to spend this money on making Australian viticulture better... Where do you think you would spend that? That's the $64 million question because that's about as all they'll give us. <laughs> Look, I, fundamentally, I think that we're underfunded across all levels of our industry, whether it be marketing or research. I was in the UK a couple of weeks ago and the money that some of the other regions around the world have as a marketing spend, it just blows us out of the water. Not that we need you know flashy stands or because yep. at the end of the day, it's the people behind the stand that make you know, the difference and the booze in the bottle. But, you know, it's very, it's in your face when you know how much some of these other countries are pumping into their industry, propping them up, I suppose you could say. In terms of viticulture and that spend, personally, I think we've always had a top-down approach. So it's always been, this is what's happening and now you have to go out and tell the growers that this is what's happening. Yep. So, you know, when we started the the Australian sustainability program a few years ago you know it was basically the corporates saying to the growers you need to be accredited under this system and if you're not we're not going to buy your grapes yeah because some boffin in you know denmark or the uk said that you need to have this accreditation for us to have your wine yeah. in this country yeah, which is easy for them to say but you know the small grower who's then got to devote the time to you know the paperwork Correct. behind all of that and 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 you know find the money for yeah. the costs involved yeah it's not that easy no and look fundamentally we need a, a some form of sustainability system that you know is a accredited i suppose or recognized worldwide like new zealand that pure kind of yeah. feel about it and i get that but anything like that needs to be driven from the grower end, not yep. the top down. You can't put a gun to someone's head and say, you need to do this or this. Yeah. Because all the growers want to, uh, you know, fundamentally all the growers want to 
do the best they can because yeah. they want to hand on the property or the vineyard or the whatever it is to their yeah. kids. No, it was the churn and burn. Exactly right. And so I guess, you know, I, I felt that that time that the, the guys that were leading the charge were taking the piss of, you know, really kind of not not giving the destiny of the, of the growers into their own hands. They were just like, you know, you need to do this. So fundamentally, I think the whatever sustainability model that we do as a country needs to be, you know, endorsed and driven and backed by the growers. It has to be made for them. To work, it has to work for them. Correct. And I think that's starting to happen now through the new SWA sustainability model that um, is a kind of a, a blend. I won't go into the politics of that. But I've always felt like, at a regional level, all growers want is something that's practical that they can put into play right now. You know, whether it be, you know, the greatest thing ever created, I reckon, was that ute guide. It was like, oh, shit, what's that weed? And you open up your ute, the glove box of your ute, and you pulled out the weed guide, and you could see what it was. Then they bought a spray guide, a spray ute guide, and, you know, that that kind of tangible thing that a grower can, can feel and look at is what they need. And when we start talking about, um, you know, the... The, the aromatic compounds of Sauvignon Blanc or, you know, great, but how does that help Joe Blow in Clare Valley grow or, you know, help his Utica issue that he's got with his dead arm in his vineyard? It doesn't really. So I think at the end of the day, as a research arm of our industry, we, we kind of get have to get back to the basics of what is it that is going to help our growers get through um, whatever situation they're in. And I think innovation is a great, way i mean i i said new zealand before and agriculture over in new zealand and certainly viticulture is 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 more advanced than what we've got here in terms of um, agricultural machinery and you know you can argue why i mean they only grow one variety over there and (laughs) they only have you know they don't have state government and you know there's a lot of ease of, of movement of things over there but they are in a nutshell a very innovative kind of bunch over the ditch and it would be great to have a bit more of that in our industry, but it's expensive. You know, you can go and buy the flashest, latest undervine weeder to try and minimise your herbicide use, but at the end of the day, it's expensive and you've got to change your, you know, how your vineyard's set up and all those things. But yeah, I think we need to start moving towards that more. But as, as a nutshell, uh, in a nutshell, it, it, basically the funding has to be creating things that are much more tangible for the growers at the coalface and you know maybe talking to them a lot more about what they need how do you reckon building that sense of community between the smaller winemakers helps everyone i think it's important at a regional level because you know there is a lot of pride behind uh, the growers in australia in the region they're in i think Yes, when we go to the world, it's brand Australia and, or, you know, brand South Australia or whatever, you know, state you're in. But at the end of the day, what I think is what gives growers the real kind of, you know, excitement is when they see uh, their region or a, or a brand that is championing their region doing well. Um, because, you know, I think that really gives them a boost and, and gives them sort of some... I guess, positive outlook into the future and say, oh, okay, well, you know, there is someone that's championing our region and, you know, that might mean that 
I might be able to sell grapes them one day or I might be already doing that. So that's great to see, I guess, where your grapes are ending up. Because sometimes, well, often you'll sell grapes to your big corporate grower, uh, big corporate winemaking company, and you'll never know where it ends up. You know, it'll just disappear into a big bulk blend somewhere. Whereas if you're selling grapes to a smaller family-owned winery within your region, you know, often you know exactly what product it's in. And so there's then, that sense of ownership and yeah. something to be proud of yeah. rather than it sort of just disappears into this nameless void. Yeah. And that's the great thing about the smaller regions, I think. You know, like Langhorn Creek, for instance, and the Adelaide Hills, a lot of the growers know exactly where their fruit is going to and what, what's the label it's in. And often the winemaker will champion the viticulturist or the, wine, uh, the, the, the vineyard on the label. And they'll either call it after the, the vineyard or the grower or they'll mention them on the back label. Now, that relationship is, is paramount to, to, you know, building confidence within a community that, you know, okay, well, we're, we're on to something here, we can do this. Can we still do more with that? I mean, there was the old joke that, you know, what's the difference between God and a winemaker? And it was that, you know, God doesn't tell you straight away that he's a winemaker. <laughs> and, but, you know, and, and we have always, you know, made yeah celebrated sort of winemaking talent but we don't probably throw enough light onto great viticulture yeah and, you know how can you think of some ways that we could do more to celebrate that i, I think we're getting there nick I, I reckon you know 10 years ago having a viticulturist of the year award with halliday would never have yeah, been a, what? you know what how do you spell that you know kind of thing whereas now it's a much more regarded as you know you can't make good wine with shit grapes yeah you know, it's it's simple but yes we can do more and I, I see the other side you know the bigger guys will struggle because just in terms of the size of their blends or their size of their you know how many cases they make of a particular wine they can't champion you know one particular grower unless it's a you know a very small production but they can champion a region yeah and that in itself i think is enough and when you're in a region that is not being put at the forefront of a branding sort of promotional thing on a wine label, then it's tough. Yeah, if you're just sort of in the ether of southeastern Australia, it's tough. So, what what are your relationships like with other growers and winemakers in your region? It's great. I I, I mean, I, I guess being on both sides of the fence, you know, you can see it from both both ends. I, I get frustrated with with my growers sometimes and yeah. go, oh my god, you know. But then I I got to always sort of walk a mile in their shoes and go, okay, well, you know, why are they doing that? Or And it's a balancing act. It always is. They're like cats and dogs. You know, they're, they, they're never going to really agree on everything, but it's that understanding between them that they're, at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is, you know, make the best bottle of wine. And if you all have that kind of, I guess, common goal, then you'll get there. But it's always hard, yeah. Do you think the sort of grower community, you know, in either of the regions that you're sort of involved in, yeah, you know, do you think they get together enough? I mean, is there enough communication, you know, at a grower level? It depends on the region, I think, Nick. Uh, where Langhorn Creek, for instance, is a very diverse region, but is predominantly growing grapes for the bigger corporate guys. Mm -hmm. So that communication is on a level that, you start seeing a winemaker or a grower liaison officer, you know, probably after Christmas, getting close to the harvest. And then you'll see them, 
you know, after harvest when they do their classifications and then that's pretty much that's it. That's it. But in the smaller region, uh, so the regions that are more diverse in their, I guess, wine brands, McLaren Vale, perfect example is that there's not a lot of corporate growers down there. Uh, a lot of them grow for specific brands that are family owned, you know, medium, small to medium sized mm-hmm. wineries. So I think that communication runs all year and often, you know, great friendships are, are formed from that relationship. And I, I think that, you know, it gets back to my point about when a grower sees their fruit in an end product and they know that that, that wine, that's from my vineyard, that's pretty special. And I'm sure that gives them confidence that, okay, well, you know, I can, I can then invest in my vineyard. I can do the things that that winemaker is expecting of me. Yeah, because and it, it, yeah, it's, a, it's a rising tide lifting all yeah. boats. And I, I still remember years ago going to um, a grower's day at, at Torbrick and, you know, people, a lot of people have all sorts of opinions about Dave Powell, but one of the things I thought he did brilliantly at Torbrick was to keep, you know, all grower parcels sort of separate, mended separately, and then to bring them all together so, you know, just line everything up. Yeah. You know, put on a fantastic dinner for everyone. He used to fly Tetsuya down from Sydney to do dinner for all these guys. But just to have everyone there, you know, tasting the wines and to see, well, okay, my neighbour made A grade. I was only B grade this year. So, you know, sit down with a winemaker and talk about, you know, what needs to be done mm. to, to elevate that. that sense of community makes you feel like you're part of something and it's not just you being insular and yeah. no one's appreciating the work that you're doing. Yeah. Because I think that's big for your sense of purpose is feeling like it's actually going somewhere, it's being appreciated and people are noticing. Yeah. Yeah, because it seems like there would be that potential as well for it to be quite a lonely occupation if you're not finding ways to connect. Yeah. Yeah. What, what have you seen bring people together? Uh, in the creek, we do a lot of, well, we jump in the utes and go for a drive and see each other's vineyards. Now, that would never have happened. 25 years ago people would have been you know the walls go up what happens over this side of the fence doesn't happen over that side of the fence it's very you know there's some secret source that that guy's got that we don't have or whatever it is but and i know it happens in a, in a lot of other regions that you know on a friday afternoon we'll grab a couple of roadies from the pub and we'll all jump in utes and we'll go around and look at all the vineyards and you know that i guess opens up some wounds in terms of you know gee whiz um you know things that go wrong in a vineyard that your mates uh, are looking at but ultimately you know i've seen the evolution of that over the last four or five years where you know the warts and all approach is the best approach it's like i'm going to show you a block that i'm targeting for you know bleasdale frank potts and this is you know the guys from bleasdale they love this block it looking awesome but i'm also going to show you my degrade block which i don't know what's wrong with it or i can't you know throw enough water at it and it's still looking crappy or it's got you know all these as i said the warts and oil approach is the best way and i've found that you know it's helped the group of guys that we're in that night that we hang out with that you know things are you know when you have that approach that honesty you know we're all doing the same thing and we all have stuff that, oh, shit, I stuffed that up or I didn't do that right or I don't know why I'm doing that. Or, and it's that open, I guess, open door policy where I think that's assisting in their, you know, belief in what they're doing. What impact does that have straight away on, you know, someone who 
feeling pretty down potentially about a particular block or you have that chat and then does it can you see that light in the mood or you just can tell oh, that yeah. it has that impact definitely because you know we're all honest and we're not going to sugarcoat it and none i guess the guys that i we do that with none of us have huge egos in terms of like you know put the proverbial on the table and you know this is this is it it's like come on yeah you, know. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah well um they're not enough big enough table for you nick so <laughs> but i think you know the guys that, are, uh, that we do it with you know they've had their challenges over the years and they have their challenges now and i think there was always that apprehension of you could see that oh you know i don't really want to show them this i might be embarrassed you yeah. know but at the end of the day everyone's got the same problems so yeah. and that openness has helped yeah. no end i think are there solutions that come for that or is it oh, just, oh sorry mate that looks pretty ordinary uh, does someone say well uh, maybe if you tried this exactly i mean the great thing is, is the diversity of the guys that do it you know uh, obviously grape growers but there's um you know viticulturists there there's agronomists you know and that diversity and also they're all not doing the same thing we're not all growing grapes for the same companies and yeah. so when you look across that, I guess, broad range of knowledges and, and situations, there's always going to be something that we're going to glean off each other and go, okay, well, next year, if I get the opportunity, I'm going to do that. You know, and, and that could be from, you know, frost control or irrigation techniques to, you know, canopy management. It's all a vast range of things that come up. And, you know, we've got guys that all they do is grow grapes for, you know, that kind of C grade. You know, they make reasonable money because they grow more tons per hectare. Then you've got the guys that are growing, you know, the super premium stuff. So to see that broad spectrum is also really important as well. Yeah, but I suppose you're always learning that way. And then you also get the sense that no one's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it's agriculture. It's, you know, it's a shit of a game. And when you get it right, you can never get it right across your whole vineyard. You're always going to go, okay, well, far out. I'll do that next year on that one. Or, or maybe you've just got a block that's a dog. And it's always going to do the same thing. So. Yeah, very humbling yeah. occupation. But I suppose that's also part of what makes it great because you can always improve and you're always developing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find that grape growing is um, the most challenging of the industries because, yeah, as, you know, as we said, it, it's all down to, it can all come down to that one moment in time where you've got one winemaker coming through your vineyard and grading your grapes. And it's just so... You know, it's not like they can squash it and put it in a computer and it'll give them the analysis that compares it to their neighbour or, yeah, you know, a block. It's basically they stick a grape in their mouth and go, oh, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, look at the canopy or whatever. And it's just so kind of, you know, down to that moment. Pretty brutal that it yeah. can come down to that. Yeah, yeah like it's like it, somebody said once it's like the dog racing. You know, it's like if the dog has a shit before it runs out of the thing, well, it's like, you know, it's that the smallest of things can completely blow the whole thing. Know, blow the whole thing. It's like, you know, um, yeah. is, that, is, that, is that you know is that a problem when you know, some of those bigger companies they got fairly high staff turnover in their winemaking teams, and you mm. know you're seeing a different person, you know, year on year on year. I mean, really hard to then build relationships and have you know some understanding of yeah. your vineyards within those businesses. I look, there is some obviously knowledge passed on through the change of guard i suppose and you'd hope that that can you know I, I guess be a baseline then if a new winemaker or glo comes in but in the, the day it's down to personal you know and also relationships you know I, 
know people that have fantastic relationships with their customer, whether it be a corporate or a yeah. medium size. And that I think goes a huge, huge way to improving, you know, the outcome of their grapes, whether it be it's, you know, sent to the right winery or it's batched with, you know, grapes from another grower that, you know, are A grade or B grade, you know, you know, it's not all down to what's happening on the vine. It can be as much as what's happening when you're, you know, going and having a beer with the GLO yeah, or having yeah. a coffee with them in the morning or whatever it is. I think that's as as important as what's happening in the vineyard. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And you get into your poker nights as well, and uh, a bit of sausage making, I hear. Yeah. So I, I you know, I guess that's <laughs> tell that's us about it. your sausages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got it on the brain today, Nick. <laughs> it's Monday morning. Um, I guess uh, you know, for me, it's important that you know the guys that we jump in the ute with and go around and check vineyards and do whatever. We also have extracurricular activities outside of growing grapes because it can be a pretty you know, hard slog sometimes. So we've got a group of guys in Langhorn Creek where every four or five weeks we'll have a poker night and that's been running for nearly... Who's the dodgiest poker player? Uh, we've got a guy who's a fiery here in Adelaide. Um, he drives down every day from Langhorn Creek to Adelaide. He's a fiery and, and obviously firemen don't do much else other than, I think, <laughs> play, play, play table tennis and sit around and play cards. And yeah. He is a gun. Like, he, he walks away with all the cash. No. Uh, sorry, the chips. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that in itself is a great release for these guys. You know, we it's very ad hoc. It's not, you know, the first Friday of this month. It's, it's just whenever we kind of feel that the the moment's right and it's coming up in, I think, next Friday, I reckon it is. You know, it's pruning's coming to an end. Everyone's had a pretty long, cold winter and, and it was just, you know, the text message goes out to the 10 blokes, right, it's at this place or, you know, someone's house or, you know, sometimes we go on a trip, we'll go over someone's shack over at York Peninsula and we'll have a weekend over there and we'll play a few rounds of poker and go out and catch some whiting. Nice. That kind of thing is a great release and there's not much talk about vineyards, which is great. You know, there's a bit of to and froing. There's some deals that are done, you know, there's grapes that are traded or wine you know that sort of stuff happens on the side but not it's not there to be another forum for you know what what you know grapevine nutrition problems have yeah, i got everyone's um, taking their mind off it exactly and you know we sit there we all bring a couple of nice bottles of red and often the sun comes up and we're still you know kicking around so it's you know but our wives appreciate that as well because they see it as you know for what it is it's just uh, a bunch of guys letting off steam letting off steam and we're not doing anything you know we're not doing anything untoward other than letting off steam which is great and then that kind of evolved in um into doing other things you know where everyone's uh a bit of a green thumb and we all grow tomatoes and jalapenos and chilies and gherkins and all these sort of things so we're into all that stuff and then we uh i think four or five years ago started sausage making which was <laughs> Um, you know, started off being, you know, 10 kilos and I think, I think this year was 250 kilos of pork. Far out. So yeah. we did uh, uh, fresh sausages and salumi and that's a that's a full weekend and they're all stored in my cellar at the moment. So we've got, I think, about 100 kilos of salumi hanging in the cell. Looks like something out of a, you know, <laughs> horror movie. <laughs> and it's underneath my daughter, yeah. eldest daughter's bedroom. Yeah. So she... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty happy that that house is smelling like meat, but um, 
you know, those things I think are, they're just the things that bind us together because we're all very different and we all don't hang out all the time. We're all, you know, the 10 blokes don't go to the pub every Friday and just, you know, have beers. We're not that kind of group of guys. We're, we're, we kind of break away and then we have smaller groups that, you know, see more regularly and then we come back, for, you know, like poker. And, yeah. and it's that, perfect though because it's not in your face correct. and, and yeah. you've got an activity to do together Yeah, and it's sort of come if you want. Yep. Kind of attitude, you know? Yeah. And it's, and I think that, uh, push pull kind of thing has helped no end for some of the guys in the group because you know we've all been through our own personal challenges and we've all got demons that we kind of push down and don't let out but every now and again you know at the poker night it'll get pretty heavy and pretty deep in terms of you know someone telling the the group or you know it might be the guy sitting next to them you know what's happening in their world and and I think that ability as a group to know each other well enough and know that you know it's kind of that you know code of tone of silence kind of thing doesn't really it's it's great do you think that yeah. willingness to open up and talk has sort of grown with time as you you know spend yeah. time together it's easier to to open up and yeah. and lay it all out yeah and often it's the guys that you think are the hardest or the strongest are the ones that need or will just you know ask a question or make a statement and, you, and it kind of, you know, if you're the, on the receiving end of that, you go, wow, you know, we've kind of, you know, crossed the, crossed the, or gone to the yeah. next level kind of thing. And it's great because, you know, we're all going to need that friendship group or that support at some point. And, um, yeah, it's certainly not, it's ne- certainly not dressed up like that though. It's not like, you know, this is a men's health group kind yeah. of thing. Um, and I think that you know, that sort of yeah. artificial structure doesn't really no, work. No, and you know we're not. It's not like we're going to get a clubhouse or anything like that. And you know, and have Friday night kind of you know sessions where we all you know steam up the room and whack each other on the bum, kind of you know <laughs> like those Simpsons episode. But it's you know the fact that the ten of us still, uh, you know, after ten years or whatever, drink you know drinking and having poker together, are still mates. And um, you know, like for instance, Friday night. Friday morning, we got a text from one of the guys and, you know, he's going through some stuff at the moment with his property and, you know, he just sent a text saying, anyone keen for a beer this afternoon? And, you know, no one had been sort of seeing each other for because pruning is a cold, isolating kind of moment in time. So we all just rocked up at the pub at five o'clock, you know, had a few beers and everyone had stuff to do. So we're all out of there by sort of 6.30. And, you know, it wasn't like we went there kind of to group hug it was just we're there for each yeah, other and just yeah. needed something yep. just a little mechanism to make exactly it happen. right and that's important and you don't i don't think it's um it doesn't always have to be the, the group of 10 kind of thing it can be a breakaway kind of couple that you know help each other and support each other more closely and and rely on each other and that's what's happening so and when someone does bring something up how is that received by the rest of the group like are people sort of are they a bit stumped sometimes, not sure how to respond, or you guys know each other well enough where you're able to... There's not a lot of psychology degrees, you know, amongst the group. So no. how, how, how do you... Yeah. How do I, I look, personally, I, I think uh, most of us have been through, you know, whatever is going to be brought up at the table, whether it be, you know, relationships at home, you know, kids, or if it's a business, um, you know, question, you know, a problem with, you know, what's happening in the vineyard or contracts or whatever else a lot of the time the the issue is not really brought to the table with all 10 
you know, because there's that kind of, I guess, reluctance to sort yeah. of air your dirty laundry too much. So often it'll be just a, you know, phone call on a Monday morning. What do you got? What are you doing today? Do you want to come around for a coffee? And, you know, you go around there and, and kind of listen. That's, yeah. I guess, the key. And often it's not having a solution to the problem. Often it's just hearing them talk through it. Yeah. And they, 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 they know the answer. They can get it off their yeah, chest. Yeah. Um, you know, they know what, what the outcome needs to be for them to get through this. But it's just a matter of talking through it with someone. And, and you know, it could be just to say as much of that's what I would have done. Yeah. And that's enough. Because when you speak it out loud, that's when it actually either makes sense or it doesn't yep. make sense. But I think that's an important point to raise because people who are on the receiving end of that might avoid it sometimes because they feel like, oh, I wouldn't know what to say. Yeah. And the point is, like you just said, they, you don't have to say anything yeah. a lot of the time. You just, just listen. Yeah. The person speaks it. They work it out for themselves. Yep. And then they feel like you were there to yep. support them. I mean, look, you know, when you're talking about anything, most of the time you know what you would do or you are going to do. It's that positive kind of affirmation to say from someone to say, yep, you're on the right path. If I was walking in your shoes, that's exactly what I would do. That's enough. So that's either encouragement or if they hear it from you, they go, well, I need to change direction right, <laughs> well, right now. Yeah, or, or it's that delegation of blame. Yeah. You've just, they've just shifted the blame onto you and you go, you told me to do, do that. that. I'm like, no. It's Keelan's yeah. fault. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, look, I think the next few years are going to be tough for our industry and I think that support mechanism that we have, albeit it's not, as I said, it's not marketed or publicised as a support network, but I think it's going to be critical in the next few years with some of the guys that we've got in our group that it's going to be tough. Yeah, and, so, that, and that's not just in Langers, that's going to yeah, be that's everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, so how good is it to have a community like that where it sounds like that wasn't the case in the past because I'm sure that makes a huge difference when the chips are down and definitely. people need some help. Yep, definitely. And, you know, whether it be making sausages or, uh, you know, playing cards or going fishing, anything like that I think is um, is enough of a, a – I, I think it's an, an enough of a buoyancy vest to hold someone up and not drag them down. You know, that – I'd hope that – you know, anyone within our group of mates is is understands that the support is there at any level that it's not going to get as bad as they think it's going to get. When have you needed help along your journey? Daily. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I've, I've been very lucky. I've got a very supportive wife and I've got a really great group of mates in the industry. And not that I've kind of ever, I think, you know, you know, sat down with any of them, but it's just that kind of just talking. I've also had from day one great relationships with uh, the growers that I work with. You know, David Blows, who was my primary grower for several years, you know, we're um, good mates with him. And, you know, I think that understanding that you have at that mateship level can, I guess, um, get you through the harder times come vintage time when, you know, it gets a bit pointed. And also in a business sense, I've had, I guess, a mentor that I've had for several years that comes and meets with me twice a year at a more strategy kind of level. And then uh, every couple of months we'll go down, I'll go down to Adelaide and spend a couple of hours with them and just, you know, basically open book policy. And that's helped no end because, you know, when you're juggling 50 balls in the air, 
and I find that you know you work in the business far too much and you know it's that old saying you got to work on the business not in the business and and it's it's true you you spend all this time on the kind of the mechanics of your business and not any time on where you're going and how best you should get there and I think um that's important and and it, I think growers need to do that as well they need to really you know when you're out in the vineyard pruning you feel like you're being productive because you you know oh, well, I'm pruning or you're slashing or doing all this but are you actually working on your business um, as productively as you can often it's better to pay someone else to do that if you can and and spend some time uh, with some clear air and blue sky thinking about you know where is this business going where's my vineyard going can I do something else can I diversify other varieties or other horticultural enterprise all those things that I guess when the industry starts getting, you know, a bit tighter, growers have to really start thinking a bit more like that. And then there's your personal life as well. So there's a fair yeah. bit to manage. Yeah. Is there a time that sticks out where you struggled particularly? I guess when I left uh, my family's business, uh, which, you know, was safe. I was running a lot of vineyards. We had a successful contracting business and we had lots of contracts that were you know long term and you know i could have probably sat in that seat for 30 years and you know it would have been you know and i was happy you know there was nothing really that i kind of considered to be um bad about my situation but when you know you get that kind of feeling in your belly that oh, i need to do something else for myself that was a big step you know, leaving the nest, so to speak. And, yeah. and it wasn't necessarily and, easily understood within the business because, no. you know, the logical thing would be, you know, Correct. it's good here, why wouldn't you stay? Why would you, you know, why would you take the risk on something else yeah. when everything seems so sorted here? Yeah. And it was interesting because I was on the precipice of leaving or not leaving for, you know, probably six or seven months. And then someone in the industry that I don't know very well, who's quite well known in the industry, approached me out of the blue and just said, you've got to do this. This is, that's your destiny or, I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was, it, it resonated quite strongly with me because I was thinking, God, he did, you know, who, who, A, why, how does he know my situation and B, why does he feel necessary to come up and tell me that? And Wine Yoda. Yeah, well, he did. <laughs> it was a bit like that. He was like, um, He looked back, he was gone. <laughs> well, I look back and I see what he's done with his life. Oh, Jesus, he's doing all right. That was the push that I needed to just say, you know, fuck it, just do it. I look back and that was probably a time where I was really kind of like, shit, am I making the right decision here or not? You know, having that conversation, the hard conversations with my wife about leaving the business, her family, uh, my family, you know, it was all pretty hardcore. Do you remember so, what she said to you at that time? I um, know what she said because you've told me. But yeah. She I, was, yeah. off you go. It was, she was supportive, but she, she um, certainly felt that if I had to do it and I felt that it was, you know, for the best interest of me, not in so many words, but, you know, but obviously it was, it was hard because the dynamics of where we were was, you know, quite intense and, the family structure of the business and everything. So, um, but we look back now and you go, well, we can't really remember what life was like when Tom was in the business. It was kind of, you know, we've all moved on and I think we're all in a much better space, which is great. Yeah. And yeah. you can look back and be satisfied that 
you made that call and it turned out to be the right thing. But at the time, yeah. you don't know. But that's the, that's where the bravery comes in. Well, I don't know if it was bravery or whatever, but I guess, you know, I, I look at the situations that some of my mates are now have got ahead of them in the industry. They're going to have to make decisions like that in some respect, you know, and I hope that I can probably at some point pass on some of my not you know not knowledge but my uh what's happened to me my experience and say you know what sometimes that leap of faith if you can call it that is what is needed to to get out of the comfort zone and say okay well you know to break out of this how we're going to do it you're going to do it around the same time all this is happening you you know your plates like that and you go oh i'm going to heap a bit more stuff on it and you go and take over you know the running of the, you know, the Adelaide Hills Ryan region, the presidency yeah. of that. Now, can you sometimes take on too much? Yeah, that was a big call. Um, I felt at that time the Adelaide Hills wine region was on the precipice of kind of hitting the big time, and we had some amazing brands that were being recognised worldwide, like you know, Coda Barrels and some of the guys like Sean Smith and all these guys. You know, the Adelaide Hills brand was getting bigger but structurally and financially I think it really needed um, someone to come in and kind of just rein in what was going on and I felt that I don't know I felt that that was my job to do for two years and I loved doing it and also having an Adelaide Hills brand it was important for me to understand I guess where the the brand Adelaide Hills was heading and I look back and you know, although it was only two years that I was the president of the Adelaide Hills, I felt that I left it in a much better state than I got it. Not yep. saying that, you know, I'm some freaking oracle or anything that came in and had the mind as such, because there was stuff already happening in the hills that was exciting and positive. But for me, just to give some structure around uh, the board and the working groups and things like that, and financially to get some checks and balances in place, I look back and go, you know, that it's a really great time in my yeah. life where um, we had an awesome executive team, an awesome EO, and it was just a great period of time. And having that experience prior when I was in Langhorn Creek, I kind of felt that I had the tools necessarily to do what needed to be done. And uh, yeah, but you're right, Nicky. It wasn't wise, but it felt like it had to happen. Do you think more growers should be involved in regional associations and in the you know the politics and the you know the administration around wine regions, um, I think all all our industry boards need more of that uh, grassroots kind of you know thinking and and that uh, the, the pub test kind of you know there's a lot of stuff that goes on and I I go hang on if I walked into the Langhorn Creek pub and said oh guess what guys this 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 happened today at the meeting and this is what funding is happening here or this is what this they go, really? What? That doesn't sound right. It, there needs to be more of that yep. in our industry because it, it's becoming a lot more bureaucratic. And I feel that the great thing about our industry, which I think we should never lose, is that kind of you know heart and soul, that you know, no, dirt, dirt under the fingernails kind yeah. of feeling. Growing stuff, making stuff. Correct. Rather than always just talking about stuff. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I think a lot of stuff gets lost and... A lot of money gets spent in places where it shouldn't be spent because 
there's just not the right people in there just saying, hang on, that sounds like bullshit. Hang on, you know, I'm, I'm pressing the bullshit button on that. Yeah, and if anyone thinks, oh, well, I've got no power or, you know, to influence this or, you know, it's all just going to happen around yeah. me, but that's not necessarily the case. No. People can actually get involved and, yeah. and, and it, make some change. Yeah, and it, it's, look, it's not exciting stuff a lot of the time and there are these, you know, bureaucratic layers that, I think now we have to work through from, you know, regional level, going to state level, then national. And that, that has to be streamlined a lot more. And that, you know, it comes back to, you know, the funding of our industry and all those things. It just needs to be a lot more streamlined so that people understand it better. And then they're less, I guess, opposed to getting into it at a, even a re- regional level or a state level. Because it, it can be kind of daunting. You look at it and go, I don't understand any of this. I don't understand what that board does or what that group does or where my levy goes and who has it and all that sort of shit and growers go it's all too hard but at the end of the day you've got people then that are determining their destiny that you know they don't have skin in the game and you need that skin in the game so yeah your girls have grown up in you know vineyards and in wineries what if they were to come to you one day and say you know dad we think you know this is where we're headed What's the advice you... Where's that bullshit button again? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, that's I think your girls both have pretty good bullshit buttons. Yeah, yeah. to listen to you um, most of the time. Look, we have uh, my eldest, uh, Izzy. She's she's working in the cellar door at the moment down Langhorn Creek and not every, you know, when she comes home from, from school. And that's great. It's giving her, I think, much more on that sort of interaction, personal level. It's great to understand that. But I'm, I'm kind of opposed. Not that I'd ever try and stop them from doing what they loved but i i kind of feel that there's other industries that i'd love my children to be involved in and not in ours not that um i don't love our industry i just i do worry for our industry and where it's headed you know long term i think there's a lot of challenges ahead of us and structurally we need to change and yeah i I just i don't know if i want my kids in there yeah that it's tough uh you know i'd love to you know, in the, in the perfect world, that kind of handing over of the vineyard and the property and the whatever the brand and all that, and then, but then you you look through of what we've done to get to where you, it, it's only going to get probably harder for them in the future. So, but look, if if one day they came home and go, I want to go to wait and I want to do an uh, onology course or viticulture course, great, let's yeah. do it. So, Tom, you got the business, you got family, and then you're thinking about the broader region a lot as well. So there's a lot on your mind, a lot on your plate. What do you need to stay on top of to make sure you're looking after yourself? It's just having a good group of mates that I can rely on if I need them. Having a strong family connection, making sure that my kids are happy and my wife's happy. And I think the other thing is the relationships with those around me on a business level you know, making sure that um, yeah, I say to my uh, distributors, I just don't want to be on your shit list. Because, you know, when everything gets really hard, I think everyone has a shit list. And if you're on someone's shit list, you sort of, you know, get pushed aside. And I think it's um, that understanding of what, not only what you're doing, but also how you're perceived in the industry or, you know, if you're selling your wine or selling your grapes or anything like that. I think there's a little bit of that, um, you know, just stepping away from yourself and looking at your interaction with someone or something and making sure that you're 
you know, doing that in the right way. It's You can get ahead without being an arsehole. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of that slowing down and thinking before you speak a bit and going, okay, well, not I, you don't want to make it so it's like you're manipulating a situation and, you know, kind of, you know, thinking about too much before you go into it. But it's also when you're talking with someone or communicating or, you know, I look back and, you know, people that write emails and they use, you know, large caps and you go, oh, my God, you know, they're, <laughs> like they're yelling at me. You know, it's like, you know, you've just got to kind of look at yourself and go, am I interacting with this situation in the right way? And so often, you, you know, you can't help it. And But I, often I find sometimes it's really good to step away. Like I'll look back at this video and go, oh, my God, what a dick, you know. But you, know, <laughs> but you, you kind of, you've got to be in that situation, I think. Bit of a balancing act, though. Where does it all go from here? Oh, look, Callum, I, I don't think too far ahead. When I'm sort of in the in the moment, I do. When I have these, you know, strategy meetings with my uh, mentor dude, that you know, I really do kind of put that hat on and start thinking longer term. Um, building a porn empire. Building a porn <laughs> empire. Yep. Oh, look. Sometimes I only think about what I'm going to put on the charcoal tonight. That's about as far as my mind goes. But then other things I think, okay, well, you know, business-wise, what varieties am I going to be looking at next year or the year after? Yeah, it, it, so you're still always thinking and always evolving. It's not like this is what I'm doing, I'm set. It's always no, I, rethought. I, exactly right. And, you know, because I've got so many different, I guess, job roles within my business, you know, Every day there's something, you know, I look at a label that I've got and I go, okay, I probably need to tweak that a bit or change it or wine styles. Is that wine style working in the in the marketplace? Okay, I've got this grower and, you know, they've got, you know, some vacant land and they want to plant something. Okay, well, what am I going to, you know, get them to plant if I need something? You know, all these things are kind of bubbling around. Yeah, it's, it's great though to have that diversity, as I said before, but, you know, sometimes you kind of need to just stop and focus on and, and knocking that off your to-do list. I find that, you know, every every morning I kind of look on my jobs list and go, I, I, I really love, I get so excited when I have to put a line through something. It's like, oh my God, you know, that's done. And that's kind of really important for me, <laughs> just the little things. So, yeah. All right, so we've got three questions that we ask each guest at the end of every episode. <laughs> Be uh, afraid, mate. Be afraid. Okay. Who makes your favourite wine in SA other than you? Oh, that's just, a, just oh. too much of a free kick because if he doesn't say what I think he should say, <laughs> he's in the shit. Oh. <laughs> well, my wife does make a damn good, good answer. Good answer. <laughs> yeah. But I must admit, uh, I, although I don't know, you probably know, that there's a wine that I just, every time I see it, I go, oh, I love that wine, is the the Chafee Brothers, the Duft Punk. Yep. The mix of the three whites. I just, uh, that's my favourite white, I should say. Yeah, so, but my wife Cabernet, I'd say that. Yep. Uh, red or white? Yeah, that's a good question. I love Chardonnay. I don't like Riesling. Sorry, John. Yeah. yeah. Excuse me, Harbin. I was like, um, what's wrong with you? Yeah, I know. Um, but red, I, I think Sangiovese. You know, any of those sort of um, you know, warm, warm and northern northern uh, hemisphere varieties like Sangio, Tempranillo, all those I love. So yeah, red. And what makes South Australian wines unlike any other? Uh, the people. That's, that's such a Gumby response. <laughs> but it, it is. I mean, you know, I, I just think... Say? No huh? water. Lack of water. <laughs> yeah, lack of water. Uh, <laughs> too high. Um, I, I, 
you know, you go to some of the other regions in Australia and they're fantastic. I mean, Margs is an awesome place and, you know, uh, there's great spots in Victoria and stuff, but I just think the people, the, the personalities we've got in this industry, yes, there's some dickheads, um, but generally speaking, they're all really top people and they are all happy when you're doing well, just as, you know, you're happy when they're doing well. I think that is a very unique thing in South Australia. When someone wins, you know, 10 trophies at the local regional wine show, thanks, Greg Pollock, Yeah, <laughs> You know, everyone's freaking happy because it's a, a great thing to see other people succeed. And I don't think you see that in a lot of other regions outside of South Australia. Yeah, so I think I'm right as the people. Sounds gummy as I said, but. Go out on a tweet note, that's great. <laughs> well said, mate. Thank Leave you. it there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Head to the Wine Grape Council of South Australia website for links and further resources. This is part of a bigger conversation, so feel free to share this podcast with your mates and look after yourselves. Cheers. Cheers.